please be advised. This episode contains detailed discussions of violence and may not be suitable for all listeners. On April 5th, 1985, the Guadalupe County Sheriff's Office in Texas received a missing persons report for a 29-year-old tire shop employee named Kathleen Ramp. Her employer called the Sheriff's Office after Ramp missed her shift and nobody was able to get in touch with her. The Sheriff's Office immediately suspected foul play, but nearly 40 years later, Kathleen's body has never been recovered, and her friends and family have gotten no answers. Hello, and welcome to Box in the Basement podcast. I'm your host, Arlene. And I'm Leah. In 1996, my world was shattered when my uncle Leon Lorellas was shot execution style in a small town in Texas. To this day, his murder remains unsolved, and the pain of that injustice continues to haunt me, my family, and Leon's friends and co-workers. Here at Box in the Basement, we want to shed light on the overwhelming number of unsolved murders and disappearances here in Texas and beyond. Ultimately, we want to get justice for Leon and for all the victims whose cases are sitting, collecting dust in a box in a basement. 1985 was marked by commercial airliner hijackings and the Live Aid concerts in Philadelphia and London. Mikhail Gorbachev became the last leader of the Soviet Union, and the Colombian terrorist group M-19 executed 100 hostages at the Palace of Justice in Bogota. The Lakers beat the Celtics for the NBA championship. My Oklahoma Sooners would be the number one college football team. The Oilers won the Stanley Cup. The 49ers won the Super Bowl, and this was Joe Montana and Jerry Rice's 49ers, by the way. And the Royals would win the World Series. The week this incident occurred, Danielle Steele's family album was at the top of the New York Times bestseller list, and The Cosby Show was the number one TV show. That will elicit a few cringes from the audience. Though in Texas, Dallas was probably more likely to be on any given TV set. Police Academy 2 was the top movie at the box office. One More Night by Phil Collins was the number one on the Billboard Hot 100, and Kenny Rogers topped the country charts with Crazy. Kathleen Ranth liked to go to country bars, so aside from that Kenny Rogers hit, she was probably also listening to George Strait, Reba McIntyre, Alabama, Merle Haggard, Conway Twitty, and the Judds. Seguin, Texas, is a town of around 29,000 people located off I-10 between San Antonio and Austin, closer to San Antonio. It's near New Braunfels, Kingsbury, that area. It's actually one of the oldest towns in Texas founded a little over a year after the Texas Revolution started. It's just south of the hill country in what we call the South Texas Plains around here. It's hot and fairly humid in the summer and windy in the winter. In 1985, Seguin was smaller, with around 18,000 residents, and was well into the process of diversifying its economy from mostly agriculture and oil to a mix of agriculture, manufacturing, and service industries. Violent crime in Seguin is kind of an issue today. I don't have data that goes back to 1985, but the trend in Seguin seems to be the opposite of the rest of the country, where violent crime rates have generally decreased since the 1980s. From what information I can find, Seguin wasn't a really dangerous place to live and work in the 1980s. Kathleen Laura Atwood Rant was born on February 18, 1956, to Paul and Glenn Robinson. 
In April of 1985, Kathleen had just started a new job at the Lippy Tire Center under the supervision of Glenn Phillips. Kathleen was married at the time to Dennis Ramp, but they were in the process of splitting up, and Kathleen was moving out of their marital home into a new apartment. Dennis and Kathleen had two children together, ages three and eight, and Kathleen had another son, age 10 at the time, from a previous marriage. Glenn Phillips, Kathleen's boss, told investigators he last saw her at 5.50 p.m. on the evening of Friday, April 5th, as she was leaving work. Her husband, Dennis, told the sheriff's department he saw Kathleen the night she disappeared, somewhere between 9 and 9.30 p.m. According to the timeline we have available, Kathleen left somewhere around this time dropped her children off at a babysitter, and then headed to a local nightclub called the Country Cabaret to go dancing. She was not seen again. The soon-to-be ex-Dennis told the newspapers that he went to the sheriff's office on Sunday after Kathleen failed to show up for an Easter dinner with her children. But he claimed that he was told he couldn't file a missing persons report until 72 hours had passed. This is a common theme in missing persons cases past and present. An individual, particularly an adult, falls off the radar, and the immediate assumption is that the person either left willingly or could possibly just be caught up in some minor trouble and will return soon. And I get it, especially in a small town. Resources and personnel are scarce, and it's difficult for law enforcement to chase down every single person that goes no contact. At the same time, I do wonder, given what happens next, how often this is used as an excuse by people who know something, are involved in the disappearance, or who just can't be bothered for whatever reason. Glenn Phillips, Kathleen's boss, was the one who filed the missing persons report after Kathleen failed to show up for work on Saturday and Monday. Did Dennis really try and report his wife missing, or was he just saying that? We can sit here and speculate and pick apart Dennis's immediate reaction to his wife's disappearance, but that's all it is. In any case, it does look pretty bad for Dennis that he wasn't the one to report his wife missing, especially since their relationship had been rather tumultuous at the time. To law enforcement's credit, they did not use the line of reasoning where we hear so often in disappearance cases. She's an adult. She's allowed to go missing if she wants to. The sheriff's department recognized immediately that this was probably a case involving foul play. She told people where she was going that evening. It wasn't a secret that she was taking her kids to a sitter and going to the bar. She was dressed for the occasion in a blue and white western-style shirt and jeans. Her car was found the next day in the parking lot at the Country Cabaret, though it is important to note that it was not present in the parking lot when the bar closed at 1 a.m. The owner of the bar told police he first saw the car in the parking lot at around 8 a.m. on Saturday morning. It hadn't been there in the wee hours. The interviews with Kathleen's husband, Dennis, right after her disappearance, rubs me the wrong way, if I'm being honest. I don't know if it's my own internal alarm bells ringing or if it's my bias talking But some of the things he says to reporters in law enforcement just seem like giant red flags. 
He said he had no idea what happened to Kathleen, which is, of course, what you'd say if you truly had no idea what happened. It's also what you'd say if you did know what happened. One newspaper said that Dennis remarked that Kathleen was, quote unquote, very fond of her oldest son, and he doesn't believe she would have left without him if she ran away willingly to start a new life. That just strikes me as weird. Kathleen had three children, and like most parents would be, she was probably fond of all of them. Or was this just related to Kathleen's plans to move out that weekend into her own apartment with her oldest son? Remember, Kathleen's oldest was not Dennis's biological child. He was Kathleen's son with her first husband. It could be nothing, and it could just be awkward journalism, but it just struck me as an odd way to characterize the relationship between parent and child. Two other statements made by Dennis struck me as odd. And like you, Arlene, I'm not sure if it's just my preconceived notions or if something is truly wrong here. Dennis said he was surprised that the car was left behind. He mentioned that the 1980 Chevy Citation Kathleen drove was paid off, so that made it extra puzzling. The quote from the paper goes, quote, I can't see anybody leaving a 1980 model car behind, end quote. Again, it could mean nothing, but it just seems like old Dennis is trying too hard. Just me? Maybe. The next thing he mentioned actually does bring up a good point. He noted that Kathleen was a regular at the country cabaret and that she was wearing thousands of dollars worth of jewelry the night she went missing. Indeed, she'd been wearing her wedding band, which was yellow gold and had nine diamonds in it, diamond earrings, a diamond pendant necklace, two other rings, and a Seiko watch. Was this what Kathleen regularly wore to the club? If so, is it possible she was the victim of a robbery gone wrong? Or is Dennis using this as a way to divert suspicion away from himself if he was involved? I guess it just seems odd to emphasize in an interview about your missing wife who was about to leave you in the dust that she was wearing lots of expensive jewelry. Once again, it seems like he's trying too hard. On the other hand, he could just be an awkward dude who thinks he's being helpful when in reality he had nothing to do with it. The police were fairly certain early on in the investigation that Kathleen succumbed to foul play and assumed early on that she'd been killed. They searched the area in earnest, canvassing the neighborhoods, questioning friends, family, and acquaintances, and looking in unhabited locations and industrial areas alike. The lack of leads and evidence hampered investigative efforts from the start. And in their frustration, the family brought in a psychic named John Catchings for assistance. Catchings suggested that police look at the nearby Acme Brick Company for her body. He claimed to have seen Kathleen's remains near the bottom of a clay pit on the company's property. Now, a note on psychics here. We aren't going to start a fight or discuss whether or not this stuff is real. But in this case, the psychic was given some sort of case file or access to information. He was an outsider asked to give his perspective. And that is the part I think is important here. Right. 
I have quite a bit of experience teaching critical thinking and analysis, and I think there is absolutely value in bringing in an outsider to take a look at a given situation with fresh eyes. Someone may make a connection that investigators deeply entangled in the case might miss. In this particular instance, I don't think it was psychic ability that led Catchings to his conclusion. It was pretty standard deductive reasoning. Dennis Rant worked at the Acme Brick Company and would therefore likely have access to the clay pit on the property, so it made sense to look there for evidence or for a body. Catchings said he believed Kathleen was struck on the head, strangled, and then put in the pit. This is also a reasonable assumption given that law enforcement felt she was the victim of foul play early on. Investigators at the sheriff's department brought in a search team, a backhoe, and a bulldozer, and thoroughly combed through the clay pit and the surrounding area on the Acme Brick Company property, but no trace of Kathleen was found. It was slow going and difficult work. The slope of the pit was slippery and unstable and had about a foot of water in it and vehicles could only get within 20 to 30 yards of the pit. Searchers then had to get out and walk to and around the pit on foot. So, as this is a missing persons case, and not technically a murder case, not yet anyway, there is always a possibility that Kathleen left willingly. I personally don't think this is the case. Kathleen had three children. Speaking as a parent... I know the situation would have to be extraordinarily dire for me to leave without a trace and not take my children with me. I would think that if Kathleen was getting out of Dodge to escape her husband and start a new life, that she would have left her kids with her parents or another close family member or friend with instructions and information about her plans. Kathleen's parents, from what I can gather, were not in Seguin when she went missing. They were in Canyon Lake, which is about an hour northwest of Seguin. Kathleen was very close to her parents, and her mother felt that if she was planning to leave or start over, she would have given them a heads up. Kathleen's parents traveled a lot, and Kathleen handled all their mail and business-related needs when they were on the road. Kathleen called her parents regularly and her mother said that they never went more than three days without speaking on the phone. If Kathleen's mother says falling off the map without a word is uncharacteristic of her, then I believe her. There's also the matter of the new apartment. As we mentioned earlier, Kathleen was leaving her husband. They'd been separated for some time at this point. She was planning on moving into her new apartment that very weekend she went missing and had already put down a deposit and paid the first month's rent. Though she didn't seem broke or on hard times, it still seems very odd that she'd pay that kind of money just to turn around and leave town without a trace. Some would argue that's exactly what someone trying to cover their tracks and start over would do, but I sincerely believe that's not the case here. The article I found that talks about the circumstances surrounding Kathleen's disappearance mentioned that her purse and makeup were found at, quote-unquote, the apartment. I'm not sure if the article is referring to the new apartment or the home she shared with her husband, Dennis. I think they mean the new apartment, but I can't be 100% sure. Kathleen's keys and wallet were missing, however, which makes sense since her car was found at the bar, not at the apartment. 
Kathleen probably did like a lot of women do and just pocketed her wallet to take to the bar as opposed to taking her entire purse. She liked to dance and hauling around a bag would be inconvenient. I don't carry a purse, but Arlene, I know you do, and I know sometimes you'll either just take your wallet out of your purse or take whatever cards and ID you need and leave everything else. So it's not necessarily strange that the purse was left behind, but you would think that if she was leaving for good, she would take it with her. And then you have the car. It was paid off, Dennis was correct, and it was only five years old. So if you were planning to leave town, wouldn't you take that car with you? Unless Kathleen had a secret bank account or cash stash and bought another car on the sly, I think she would have taken that car with her. And then there's the matter of the car showing up in the parking lot after the bar was closed. Remember, the bar owner said it wasn't there when he closed up shop at 1 a.m., but it was there when he returned at 8 a.m. This is just weird and doesn't fit with the narrative that Kathleen left willingly. Yeah, there's just too much for it to be a case of leaving to start over. The purse, the apartment, the car, and the kids. No, especially not the kids. Also, I don't know of any woman that would leave their purse behind if they were going to move away. That just doesn't seem logical. Woman takes her makeup and her purse and especially her kids, unless someone's chasing her with a gun and she can't get her kids. It's just not going to happen. That's my opinion, anyway. There's also the matter of Kathleen's job. She had recently started working at a local tire center, and they were planning their grand opening. Kathleen's boss was expecting her to show up to work on Saturday to help set up for that event. She told other people she was planning on working that weekend. From all accounts, Kathleen was not an unreliable person, and it seems very unlikely she would have ghosted her new employer in the middle of planning something like a grand opening. She just paid on a new apartment and was in the process of leaving her husband. Doesn't make sense that she'd walk out on her job. It also doesn't make any sense to me that she would plan to have a new apartment, a new job. That seems like she was starting over, not leaving. Yeah, I agree. So obviously we agree with the sheriff's department that this is a case of foul play. So what are some possibilities here? Was it an act of random violence? That is possible. Maybe Kathleen met someone at the bar that night who turned out to not be a very good person. There was no sign of struggle in the car, so it could be that Kathleen left willingly with someone, and then that someone returned the car to the bar the next morning in order to cover their tracks. It could have been a robbery gone wrong, as Dennis Ramp seemed to suggest when he brought up the fact that Kathleen wore expensive jewelry to the club. But the car situation is really bothering me here. If it was a robbery, then where did the car go between the bar closing and 8 a.m.? Again, there was no sign of struggle in the car, which seems a little far-fetched that this hypothetical robbery would have taken place somewhere else, outside of the car, and then the thief returned the car? There were two cigarette butts in the ashtray inside the car, along with a watch that was later determined to belong to one of Kathleen's children. I'd think even in 1985 that a car would be worth more than some jewelry. So robbery doesn't seem like a very logical assumption to make. Why go to the trouble to return the car in any case 
If you robbed or assaulted or accidentally killed someone, why not dump the car where you dumped the body? It's just strange to me. Yeah, I personally just don't believe anything that her husband's saying here. It just doesn't make any sense. So what happened here? Was this a premeditated murder? Kathleen didn't have any enemies that anyone knew of. She was leaving her husband, Dennis, but he has never been formally named as a suspect or a person of interest, as far as I can tell. But he was the last person to see Kathleen alive. She was leaving him and moving out the next day. His kids were at a babysitter, and he knew where she was going to be. He said he tried to report Kathleen missing that night, and sources seem to indicate that the sheriff's department backs him up. But again, he wasn't the person who made the actual missing persons report the following Monday. Even if I were in a nasty breakup with someone, if they went missing, I would be standing on someone's desk at the sheriff's office until I got someone to do something, especially if that person was the parent of my children. I'd be banging on doors, getting my neighbors and friends to come help me look. I'd be blowing up everyone's phone. Just strikes me as odd, but that's just me and what I do. Like Leah said a few minutes ago, it's possible this was an accident. Someone left with Kathleen, things got heated, and she ended up dead. The killer panicked and dumped her body, and then took the car back to the bar. But again, Moving the car seems like an unnecessary risk if this was a situation like that. But as we all know, people in stressful situations make strange choices. Same with the robbery theory. Seems like too much trouble for some jewelry, especially considering the car was returned. So here we are, nearly 40 years after Kathleen's disappearance and law enforcement is no closer to an answer than they were in 1985. The Guadalupe County Sheriff's Department has teamed up with the Texas Rangers to try and get some closure for Kathleen's family and friends, and maybe get some justice for Kathleen herself. Kathleen Ranth was 29 years old when she disappeared in 1985. She would be 67 years old today. She was 5'6 and around 130 pounds. She was white with blonde hair and blue eyes, and she was last seen wearing a blue and white flowered Western-style shirt, jeans, sandals, gold jewelry, and a Seiko watch. She has a noticeable scar on her abdomen. If you have any information regarding the whereabouts of Kathleen or the circumstances surrounding her disappearance, please contact the Guadalupe County Crime Stoppers at 877-403-TIPS. That's 877-403-8477. This podcast has a bigger purpose than just providing information and entertainment. The Homicide Victims Families Rights Act is a bipartisan bill that was signed into law by Congress in 2021, and we want to see it put into action. This law establishes a systematic process for reviewing case files related to cold case murders. The focus is on providing a mechanism for the families and friends of murder victims to request a formal review of such cases. We need an attorney or teams of attorneys and legal professionals 
to take on the bold and brave fight against the system around the country. In our case, we need someone to fight for Leon to help not only put fresh eyes on the case, but to get his body exhumed to search for evidence that was not collected the first time around. We and other families and friends need assistance with getting FOIA requests. If you want to hear more about victim-focused, unsolved cases and get updates about what we know, please subscribe, like, and share our podcast. Also, visit our website, justiceforleon.com, to donate to our cause to hire an attorney. You can also join our email list to stay current on developments on Leon's case and other cases we cover as they happen. Thank you for spending time with us. If you'd like to support us, you can like and follow our podcasts wherever you listen. You can like, follow, and share the Justice for Leon Lorella's GoFundMe and Facebook page, as well as following our Box in the Basement Facebook and Insta pages. We have some wonderful organizations we'd like to suggest where you can volunteer or donate, which are Season of Justice, Uncovered, and The Looking Out Foundation. All who help victims and families. Thank you. Please be kind. Bye.